See, leaning on God is about bearing our weight, where we, where we actually are now in a position where we have to trust. There's this time period in our engagement where my wife and I are in premarital counseling and it's being advised to me that maybe I'm in the wrong profession and maybe I'm avoiding a call into ministry that's from God. And after this session, like all the sessions, there's just so much to process. So Michelle and I, we would just go on these drives and talk until we reached our destination. Only this time, we reached the destination, only never actually got out of the car. And so we're sitting there just discussing the idea of me quitting my job and going into ministry. And I had so much fear in these because it was, I was fearful of the financial loss, which was really probably more rooted in the fact that I was maybe fearful of the disapproval from her parents, which is really, it was all in my head. But I remember Michelle saying to me, you know, if God's calling for it, then he's gonna provide for it. And so we, we prayed in that car and committed to obeying the call from God. It's amazing to think that we, we did that without the knowledge of what was gonna happen in the months leading up after, when all of a sudden there's a biopsy and I have a cancerous tumor in my neck and I'm having surgery a month before getting married. Remember using all of our money that was supplied by that job I now don't have, going towards medical bills and not towards a home and wondering how we're gonna make it. And sure enough, eventually God provides. And flash forward, kingship began in a car. It was much like that time before where we find ourselves really wrestling with our house that God provided but now has become kind of an idol and it's keeping us from really being able to discern and obey what God's calling next for Michelle and I. So we're on this long commute, uh, processing everything, talking. We have kids in the back seat. We reach the destination, only we don't get out of the car. We just keep on talking and there's just this fear of the financial loss or what about the family stability that we'll give up by selling our house, selling everything just so that we can find out what God's calling for next. And we're reminded of the first time. And Michelle says, if God's calling for it, then he will provide for it. And so we prayed in that car and we committed to obeying God's calling. And then here we are, and I'm talking to you today from a church that I didn't even know when I made that commitment was what God was really calling us to. I want to talk about God rehashing old lessons. Why do we sometimes experience similar situations? We kind of say to ourselves, maybe like you in those stories, have I been here before? Isn't this something that I've already wrestled with or God has already placed me in the same scenario? And is it because we haven't learned the lesson yet? It's not that wives' tale about deja vu. There's this kind of weird spiritualized deja vu that somehow has been inserted into Christianity that if we feel like we're having deja vu, then it means that we're on the right track with God. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture, but it is possible that God has us finding ourselves in similar situations, lessons, 
because it's part of our growth and maturity in our faith to follow Jesus. And the first was similar because it prepares us to respond and trust Jesus in the second time around. And yes, it's totally possible that because maybe we've forgotten what we learned before or never learned it at all. I know that Jonah could probably speak to that a little bit. But I want to share a story in the Bible after the resurrection where his disciples kind of experience the second rendition of a time period that they were in before. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be John and James, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Boy, the the disciples have had an eventful couple of weeks since the resurrection, wouldn't you say? The crucifixion, Jesus rising from the dead, hiding from the Jews, Jesus showing up, Jesus coming and going. I mean, uh, Jesus wasn't exactly staying with them the whole time. And he wasn't exactly going out the front door either and then just coming back later. Jesus was appearing to his disciples and then disappearing. So was it real? Could they have been dreaming this whole time? And they're in Jerusalem. And so this is kind of an unfamiliar territory for them. And so they went back to Galilee. They went back to what they knew. And we tend to do that. We tend to go back to what we know, what is comforting, what is functionable. Because when you have a lot to process, it's actually very difficult to kind of maintain the status quo, maintain life. I mean, when you have something going on at home, you're not exactly functioning well at work. Or when work is incredibly stressful, it's kind of hard not to bring that home. My favorite piece of this is that they go to Galilee, and I'm not 100% sure if they realized or remember that the angel had promised them that Jesus would meet them back in Galilee. Whether they knew to go or whether they go, and Jesus knows that's where he's going to meet them again. But here we are, and Jesus arrives. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now here we are again where they don't seem to recognize Jesus. I've kind of noticed that ever since the resurrection, people don't seem to recognize Jesus when they're looking directly at him. Why? Maybe it's because of skepticism or grief. I mean, it's not normal to just expect to see a resurrected person. But Luke states that, that their eyes were hindered from recognizing him as Jesus. And so God clearly has a hand in this. And so it would seem that they're actually, for the first time, maybe not able to rely on sight to identify him as Jesus. And so maybe they they now have to have their faith in other ways of recognizing than the thing that they've just kind of always relied on and what was always familiar or comfortable to them. Now, this occurrence is very reminiscent of when the disciples first met Jesus. They actually had experienced something very similar to this before. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they hadn't caught anything all night, which is, by the way, the typical working hours for a fisherman. And Jesus suggests a very unconventional approach, go out into the deep. I notice in both stories that they're not that far off from shore. And both times they listen and obey Jesus, even though the commands are slightly different. And what happens? They receive an abundance. They, they receive so much that it actually almost jeopardizes their career, right? That the boat might sink. Now that should not translate, obey Jesus, get rich, right? Because the fish are inconsequential because they pick up and they leave everything and they follow Jesus. They're not first like, oh man, you just gave us this gift of so much wealth. First, let's uh, buy our mansions and Lamborghinis and then we'll follow you. No, Jesus says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They drop even the gifts that Jesus gave them and follow him. What is important is not the fact that Jesus gave them fish, but it is in the accuracy of Jesus's direction. Now, this is an old lesson rehashed. Does this mean that we now, that every time Peter and John go fishing, that if they just do it the same way, they'll always catch fish? No, because it's not in the action, it's in the voice. A, a classic that I love to bring up is Moses and the tapping of the rock. If you're familiar with this story, it takes place with the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. And when they're in this desert, they're thirsty, but there is no water. Yeah, it's, it's a desert. And, and they become so enraged and upset and they blame Moses. Moses, it's your fault that the desert has no water and it's God's fault and we may as well go back and become slaves again. And Moses, frustrated, doesn't know what to do. He turns to God and God tells him specific instructions. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. They are joyful, and God provided. And a second time comes around, when the people are thirsty, yet again, demanding water from Moses. Moses, it's your fault. It's God's fault. And we just may as well go back and become slaves again. I mean, this would probably be in the same... Didn't you guys learn the lesson before? Moses is furious. So Moses tells God, but this time he, he kind of relies more on what was done before. And God instructs Moses, though, again, only this time, to speak to the rock and not to tap it. And so what does Moses do? Well, he taps a rock just like he did the first time, and he disobeys God's command. Now, what's amazing is that water is still provided for the people, that just because Moses screwed up doesn't mean that God will not provide the needs of his people. But this severely gets Moses in trouble. He relies on the sequence of actions, on his actions, not on the command of God. Imagine if Peter and John brought out the nets into the deep like they did before and not to the right of the boat in the shallow like they're being told to this time around. 
Well, here the man on the shore, he's telling us what to do. It reminds me of when Jesus told us, he told us to go into the deep, so let's go into the deep. Both are unconventional. But one of these ways would be based on their own understanding, on their experience before, and not on God's understanding. It reminds me of of a proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. See, leaning on God is about bearing our weight, where we, where we actually are now in a position where we have to trust the Lord and not in our own understanding, not relying on ourselves being grounded by our own two feet. We're in a wobbly or unstable position. But if we acknowledge that God can provide, even in those situations, then he will make our paths straight. So although in these stories, even though that the commands are similar, they're not quite the same, right? And they follow the command. And even though they do, they still haven't recognized it to be Jesus because it's a combo of things that brought them to the realization that it's Jesus standing on that shore. It's a similar situation. Yes, they're reminded of the past and how Jesus acted before. They obey his command, yes, but it's the provision. It's in the way that he comes through yet again that has them realizing who it is. See, God is always providing. And our patience and attentiveness to this has us always seeing God as the provider, the deliverer, and allows us to stand in desperate and grim moments with certainty that God will provide. One of the things that helped Michelle and I move forward in trusting God to plant a church is remembering how God provided for us in the past and believed if he is calling us to something, he will provide it. Think of how Paul describes God's provision. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Notice it's not the reversal. It's not supply riches according to our needs. Because we tend to think more of our needs as more. More status, more wealth, more happiness. And the more well-off we are, the more great of a God he is. But, But he is the sustainer of his own glory. He makes a way for his will to be done. And he has done that through Jesus Christ. So we do not need to glorify God to make sure he's glorified. It's not like forgetting to feed a goldfish. Oh, sorry, little buddy. Here's a little more glory for you. See in a couple days. Now, we glorify him because we can see what he has already been glorified in, in the way that he has already provided for us. Look how he has the Israelites reflect on their time of wandering in the desert. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You lacked nothing. The time of the wilderness was not a time of adding abundance, but it was a time that God provided. For as the disciples experience a similar moment, reflecting on that last time when they were in this predicament, they attribute provision to Jesus. They recognize his voice, his instruction, and they don't see first with their eyes, but they know it to be Jesus. That the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped it off for work and threw himself into the sea. 
And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not that far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now, for Peter, this is a complete rehash. Sometimes God presents the same lesson again because we didn't obey the first time. Repetition in Scripture emphasizes importance. It means we should pay attention. But the first time this incident happened, it's not because Peter disobeyed. The disciples did follow Jesus as they were commanded to. Come with me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they dropped everything and they did. And here again, they're recognizing Jesus' instruction and obeying. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, says Jesus, and they follow me. The Greek word used for voice means to shine a light upon or to bring to light. It's not that they know or we know the audible tune of Jesus' vocal cords. It's that we recognize his person by his truth, his way, his life. That he has brought us out of darkness and into his understanding, not our own. And the reason that Jesus is reintroducing himself similar to the way that he did the first time with the disciples is because Peter had forgotten the lesson. And here Jesus is giving him another chance to respond differently in the spiritual growth that he has had since the last time. Peter, he, he rushes towards Jesus in almost a very foolish fashion. Who gets dressed, puts on your clothes just to jump into the water and get soaking wet? I mean, oh, I gotta, I gotta look presentable. I'm about to meet my maker. That's another lesson for another time, Peter. But for this moment, he has a very different response than he did the first time around. But when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw Jesus and the abundance, the provision that he provided, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Don't you, don't you understand? I, I, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. I'm the sinful man, Jesus. Right? Well, honestly, what has he done up to this point? What? Said a couple lies, lusted? What? Because he hasn't done that one thing that we lambast him with, but we make sure that he never forgets that when Jesus was dying on the cross, that he rejected him by saying, I don't know that guy. I want nothing and I have nothing to do with him. No, we hold that against him, but that happens after the fact. But it happens before the second incident. So shouldn't Peter be quivering? Shouldn't he be terrified to even approach Jesus? No. No, he goes full force into that water. And if he could have run across it, he would have. Because Peter now knows that he can find redemption in the presence of Jesus. He's still humbled, but he's no longer afraid to approach, to be with Jesus. And even though that he has rejected Jesus, failed as a leader, disqualified himself, and most likely knows it, he knows the truth can only be found in Jesus. What I find absolutely interesting about the connection between these two stories is how God uses similar acts to bring us to a deeper understanding of conviction of Him. That each time it requires trust and response from us. That through repetition, we might respond with more of a grasp of His mercy and glory. And I'm sure you've heard or you've you maybe know that Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. And you might have come to understand that. But then it'll come back again. There'll be another day when it just hits you. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. And it becomes a little bit heavier, while all the same time being a little bit lighter. Because we understand it. We grasp it deeper. 
wider. Each lesson that we have, it doesn't have to be about whether or not we got it right. It doesn't have to be about failing. But it can be about every time that we come to understand it better, we can become more joyful and present to the fullness of the life that God is giving us.